trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, Patriots. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington welcoming you to another Access to Excellence podcast, where we talk about the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. One of the central missions at Mason is to serve not only our students, faculty, and staff, but the surrounding Northern Virginia community as well. My guest today is one of the leaders in this effort. Shane Caswell, a professor of athletic training in Mason's College of Education and Human Development, is the founding executive director of Mason's Sports Medicine Assessment, Research, and Testing Laboratory. He leads the Achieves Project, which stands for Advancing Healthcare Initiatives for Underserved Students and the Virginia Concussion Initiative. The program is a full partnership with the public school system in Prince William County, in which Mason provides athletic trainers to 17 county middle schools. The athletic trainers are certified state licensed healthcare providers and are full time masters and PhD level students. So you talk about experiential learning, it doesn't get any better than this. The six year program has produced what Caswell believes is one of the largest epidemiological databases for pediatric sports injuries in the nation. Mason students are not only delivering the needed health care to an underserved population, they are producing data that will better deliver that care. Their data could also influence health care strategies nationally, particularly in the area of concussion prevention, diagnosis, and management, where Dr. Caswell's research into saliva biomarkers has the potential to improve the way we diagnose and treat brain injuries. Dr. Caswell with a PhD from Ohio University, is a member of the U.S. Lacrosse Sports Science and Safety Committee and chair of its research committee. He is also on several editorial boards, including the Journal of Athletic Training, and was a 2012 recipient of the Researcher of the Year Award from the Virginia Athletic Trainers Association. Dr. Caswell, welcome to the show. Thank you, President Washington. That was a tremendous introduction. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, before we get into the specifics of your research, I've heard you say that concussions are not just a student-athlete issue, but a student health and learning issue. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, I can't take credit for being the first one to say that. That really stems from a meeting that I had several years ago that a mentor of mine, a legend in sports medicine in the region and nationally, John Almquist, who was working in Fairfax County Public Schools, took me to a meeting with their leadership. The superintendent there, I believe it was Jack Dale at the time, interrupted me, the researcher, when I was presenting to him some of our data. And I was referring to just athletes. 
And what he did was he interrupted me and he said, Shane, this problem with concussions, this is a student health and learning problem. And I think for me that crystallized that from a public school perspective, these organizations are in the business of developing the minds of our youth. And we do that through learning. And that involves your brain. Mm-hmm. And so I think you only have one brain. You need to treat it kindly is what I took from him in that conversation. And it really helped me to understand the, the value that athletic trainers can play in that environment and taking concussion seriously from not just a student athlete perspective, but from a student learning perspective. No, I agree. I agree 100 percent. You know, I started playing football in middle school and I remember the worst thing you can tell a middle school kid playing football, a middle school athlete is that you're coming out of the game, right? (laughs) He did not want to hear that. And I remember there were times when you just got hit pretty hard. And we called it getting your bell rung, right? You were a little woozy, maybe, but you tried your hardest not to come off the field, right? You just avoided it at all costs. If you did feel a little woozy, you definitely didn't tell anybody. And so that made concussions, which could have been what I was experiencing at the time, like a silent injury. Has that attitude changed? Fortunately, I think that it has. I think over the last years, we've seen tremendous improvements in our knowledge about concussion, in awareness of concussion, and willingness to report concussion. Unfortunately, I think we still have a long way to go, particularly with the youth sports population. So I had both sons played in high school. You know, they played youth sports. My youngest played soccer and actually had a concussion from hitting the ball. He didn't feel like there was anything wrong, but these days they have test protocols they actually can use to determine how well you're doing and when you're ready to go back in. So he actually had to sit out for a while. And so the technology is definitely advanced from when I was an athlete. Absolutely. In fact, it's advancing so rapidly. It's one of the challenges that many youth organizations and public schools are challenged with keeping pace with the best science and the best practices available. Well, you yourself have a scary concussion story from when you were playing youth ice hockey. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, I think in large part, it's part of my journey to being here today with you is that probably around the early 1990s, 91, 92, I was playing ice hockey, high school hockey, and I got pushed into the boards from behind and I woke up on the ice. And when I woke up, apparently the first thing that I asked if the guy got a penalty, I got let off the ice. And at the time, I guess, I don't really have a lot of memories of this. These are things that people have told me about the event. But I got let off the ice and I was crying, which is frowned upon in ice hockey. And Mm -hmm. I was complaining of having the inability to see straight. And also I was swearing and stuff at my coach, which I was a pretty good kid. I didn't do those things usually. But a few minutes later, I was back out on the ice with a broken stick, skating around in circles, and someone had to come get me and bring me over to the bench. And there was no medical care on site. It was a different era. I grew up in a time period of you never let let them see that you're hurt. And so I finished the game and I practiced the next day. And I'm fortunate to be here talking with you. Your story sounds very similar to the kind of environment that I grew up in. It is very, very, very much the same thing. You know, they could have told you anything during that time, too, right? If somebody knows that you were kind of a little woozy, might have lacked out there, you know, you said all kinds of crazy things, right? <laughs> if I were your brother, I would have said, well, you, you know, you promised me 50 bucks or something like that. It's really interesting. The injuries that you basically carry, even at a young age. Well, I mean, I think that is true, right? So I probably, similar to you, grew up playing multiple sports, played them for many years through college, and 
basically fast forward why I do the research and the work that I do, I think, is largely from that event where there was no on-site health care. And then I went on to teach in a high school and coach lacrosse. And it was at a time when the sport of lacrosse was transitioning its helmets from these old boxy style lacrosse helmets that laced up in the back hmm. to these wow. new cool sleek helmets that looked more like bicycle helmets. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the kids on the team were asking me questions that I didn't know the answers to. So I went back to grad school and got involved in a research project, worked with some engineers like yourself, and fell in love with research and trying to address this issue of improving care in the community and learning more about concussion and traumatic brain injury. So we'll double back to concussions here in a second. I was blown away by the Achieves Project. You know, it's interesting. One of the reasons that I chose to do these podcasts was to really get a handle on some of the great things our faculty and our staff were doing in the community and throughout the state. This is pretty special. And so tell me about the program. How did it start and what kind of care are Mason students actually providing? Sure. So the project started originally about 10 years ago. We began to do some work in Prince William County Public Schools and other school divisions around the region to help them address new concussion laws that were sweeping the nation at the time. And Virginia just had its concussion law enacted. And so while doing that, we were building surveillance platforms for the schools to be able to identify the number of concussions that were occurring and how they happened in the schools to inform evidence-based decisions to try to develop some risk reduction strategies. And we happened to be working with these high schools and we noticed that there was, at the time, 16 middle schools in the county that had 12 sports each of the schools and several thousand athletes that were participating, or I should say students, and there was no one there after school. At the time, the the schools had closed, the coaches were with the student athletes, and if an injury happened to occur, the coaches were the ones that were taking care of those injuries. And so we saw that as a disparity and a need need to try to address that disparity. And when we approached the funding agency, the Potomac Health Foundation at the time, about this issue, they were really intrigued and wanted to help us. And so they, at the time, encouraged us to work with nine schools that were in the county that were majority, minority, and largely economically disadvantaged schools or high numbers of students in those categories. And so we began there. And what we did was we provided athletic trainers into the schools. We bought all the schools... AEDs, we developed emergency action plans, we developed policies and procedures for these schools on how to manage injuries, how to address emergency conditions and how to manage injuries. We implemented a documentation system for the athletic trainers so they could document all the injuries that occurred. We initiated a concussion baseline assessment testing program that we could implement in the schools. The athletic trainers are on site every single day that schools are in session. They're there before the school day ends. They become uh, a fabric of the school community. They know the teachers, they know the administrators, the school nurses, and they're there after school, and their presence allows the coaches to coach because they know that someone is there to care for the injuries that might occur. And any acute injury or chronic injury that needs care, they can see these highly qualified state licensed healthcare professionals and get the care that they need. And they've become really trusted members of the school community along the way. 
that enables them to be able to deliver care to a broader segment of the population in those schools. That's right. So how many hours are we talking about a day per trainer? Per day, they're there between four to five hours a day. And I assume that they're there at games as well? They're there for all practices and games. Do they receive class credit or are they compensated in any way? How does that work? Yeah, so this program's become a bit of a magnet to draw students to George Mason University. And so they are compensated. We have a grant that we have with Prince William County Public Schools. Over the years, the program was successful enough. When we put the athletic trainers in the school division, we saw injuries go up 2,600%. I don't think these athletic trainers are causing injuries. What I think was happening is we were recognizing injuries that were always there, but were going uncared for. That's right. And so we presented that to the school division. And they expanded the project to all 16 schools, and they have built it into a line item in their budget to fund Mason students to go do clinical residencies as a part of the Achieves Project in these schools. Oh, that's really cool. Now, did it start off with funding from them? or? So it started off with grant funding from Potomac Health Foundation. This is a great example of government, state, and the university working together in a partnership to actually care for citizens in the state. Absolutely, yes. Outstanding, outstanding. So talk to me about the research that you're actually able to get as a part of doing this work, right? You're extracting data anytime a kid gets hurt. So talk to us about the research, the database. What kinds of information have you been able to discover? First of all, these are allied healthcare professionals and they're out in the field providing care. And the documentation that they do is what's expected of them as a medical professional. The school division works with us to provide us de-identified aggregate data and we work with them to help them understand how injuries are occurring, what types of injuries are occurring in particular sports at certain schools, are there more injuries in practices or games, do the injuries result in time lost from participation. We know, for instance, how many injuries that a single individual would suffer over the course of their middle school career. And with that type of information, coupled with the information that we get about symptoms and about their cognitive and memory functioning, etc., we can learn more about this really interesting under-researched population of kids in this middle school level, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. Talk to me about the coaches. Did they welcome the trainers? Were there any conflicts where the coaches wanted a kid to be in and the trainer was like, nah, no way? I mean, talk to me about that. I would say that overall, the coaches have been very welcoming of our team. There are conflicts that occur, and I think they will always occur, right? Because coaches want to put the best players on the field. Mm-hmm. And the best players want to be on the field. And the athletic trainers are there to be an unbiased medical professional to make the decision that's in the best interest of that student's well-being. Not that the coach doesn't have it in their best interest, but we kind of take that off their plate. And what we found is that even though there might be some conflicts initially, that over time, the coaches and especially the parents begin to really appreciate having the athletic trainers there on the sideline. 
Have there been any changes that have occurred in the way practices are conducted or precautionary measures that have taken place because of the information and because of the trainers being there? I think the biggest intervention that we've seen is the addition of more athletic trainers in the county because of the data that we have that demonstrated their value. And so what the school division was able to do is use that information to demonstrate the value of the ATs. So that's the number one intervention. In terms of what we've seen, we've seen the information be used to inform practice planning, the information be used to reduce the volume of contact that's occurring in the contact sports. Mm -hmm. And also we've seen the information be used to help with coaches' education. Oh, that's great. So this is in middle schools in Prince William County. Is that right? That is correct. So what about elementary? That's a great question. What about elementary? The truth is we don't know. I have an eight-year-old daughter and she's participating in a number of sports. It's been our saving grace during COVID. If she suffers an injury in those sports, we know she's showing up at school or on the nurse's doorstep on Monday morning. And so the school division has some understanding of this. They've been doing this a long time. But from a research perspective, I think there's very little that's known about sports-related injuries at the ages younger than 10. That's Uh, amazing. Yes. You you know, it's interesting because, yeah, but the school systems also knew that they didn't have a lot of trainers at middle school, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and they just kind of kept going with it, right? You asked the question about have we changed our perspective about concussion, and I think that we have. Mm -hmm. And I think this is part and parcel with that, which is we have, I think, seen good changes in the last 20 years about safety in sports that are a positive trend. And I think their recognition of this program is uh, hats off to Prince William County Public Schools, I think, for recognizing this for this population of students in middle schools, Mm -hmm. whom many of these kids, this is when they first start participating in sports. No, I get it. I get it. But it's not just the concussions. You know, like I said, I played middle school sports. I actually coached middle school football for years back in Ohio, and kids do get arm breaks, they get leg breaks, they get some pretty significant injuries, you know, lots of sprains, that kind of thing. So in in addition to the concussions, they get other injuries. And it is interesting, I do not ever remember seeing a trainer on the field until high school. Now I assume that most high schools have trainers in place, is that accurate? In the Northern Virginia area, absolutely. Okay. Uh, We have outstanding athletic trainers in the Northern Virginia area and really in the Commonwealth of Virginia. But there are schools in Virginia and around the country that still do not have an athletic trainer. So you took care of the problem in Prince William in the middle school area. But there are a host of school districts around Northern Virginia that are not named Prince William, right? Do those districts have trainers in their respective districts? So they do, but unfortunately, two counts of this. So unfortunately, many of the districts do not have athletic trainers providing any care below the high school level. No, that's what I mean. But yeah. I'm talking about in middle school. Yeah, so very, very few have any athletic trainers in the middle school setting. And unfortunately, many of the school divisions no longer offer sport in the middle schools. Well, that's the problem. If you just start playing a sport in high school, especially a sport like football, you're liable not to know how to tackle. You're liable not to know how to brace yourself, you know, when you're coming into a collision and those kinds of things. And that also can lead to injuries. And so there is some learning that happens 
at those lower levels. In one sense, it shows that there are possibilities for growth, especially in and around Northern Virginia with what we're doing here at Mason. But it's a little disheartening on the other end. Well, I think so. I think the nature of youth sports in the country has changed since you and I were participating. There's a lot of opportunities, and I think that's a great thing. Unfortunately, many of those opportunities require that you have parents that have the means to get you to that pay-to-play youth sport. Mm-hmm. that they have a work schedule that permits them to do so, and they have the money to pay. Yeah, and no, I get it. That's get one it. of the things I love about what Prince William County is doing with these middle school sports and our ability to work with these communities is that we're able to provide care to many kids that might not have any other opportunities to engage in sport, and if they suffered an injury, we might even discourage them from coming to school. And so we're there, we're on site daily, they trust us, and we can provide care and hopefully help some of the minor injuries from becoming more major injuries that could be nagging over the course of their lives and help the school system be able to deliver these really valuable opportunities for kids to grow in ways outside of school, but still important. Amazing. Do you provide feedback relative to nutrition, relative to care for nagging injuries and the like? I assume that not all of the trainers are also skilled in the particular sport, but if you're involved in certain moves or in certain bodily positions that cause injuries, being able to train a kid out of those can actually move them away from getting those injuries if they're recurring, right? Do you get involved with any of that? Sure, yeah. So we do a few different things on that. So the athletic trainers that come in to this project are interested in working with the pediatric population. And so we know that little kids aren't little adults, right? So they move differently. Yep. They're developing at this age more so than they probably at any other time in your life except for the first two years, right? So we provide regular updates, educational health literacy information to the school community about nutrition, about safety, about participating in the heat, various types of educational messages like that that we send out. And we also work to provide education on certainly concussion education to the coaches and the families and the student athletes. And so we do those things. So I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So A, how many concussions have you tracked in the last six years of the program? But B and C are the other two important questions. What's the number one and two sport as it relates to concussions? Sure. So interestingly, in the last five years of the project, this sixth year has been a little bit of a pass. No, right? I understand Unfortunately, that. Unfortunately, we've had about 341 concussions that have occurred in that wow. time period. Now, 70% of those are from school sports, school sanctioned sports. The other 30% are from things outside of school sanctioned sport. And so there's a considerable number that are occurring from slips, trips, and falls, motor vehicle accidents, things that happen on the weekend, mm-hmm. etc. that we work with as well. And the number one sport, what, what do you think the number one sport is? I would say it's football or soccer. Well, I think you would be correct on both accounts. And so the number one sport is football. Okay. Football has the highest number and rate of concussions. Okay. But when we control for contact sports and we remove football and wrestling from our analysis and we just look at gender match sports, so girls soccer, boys soccer, et cetera, the number two sport overall is girls soccer. Yes. And so, and that's from heading, right? So it's really not necessarily from heading. It's some of it is from the act of heading, 
when two bodies collide. Oh, yeah, right? I get it. So there's a little bit of controversy still about how many concussions occur from ball-to-head impacts, but we do have documented ball-to-head impacts that result in concussion, but it's not the number one mechanism. It's really the body-to-body collisions that occur even in girls' soccer. That makes some sense. How do you actually measure the concussions? By that I mean... Are you testing before the season to get a baseline as they do in high school and in college? And what tools do you use to get that baseline information? So we looked at that carefully because there's not a lot of great tools that are available for this population of young athletes. We wanted to use the gold standard tool that's recommended in the, uh, internationally. So we use what's called the SCAT-5, and so it's a concussion assessment tool that is designed for anyone over the age of 12, so 13, actually 13 and up. And so then we also use the child SCAT-5 for kids that are younger than that. And so mm. we do baseline assessments with the children when they're healthy, and we do that on an annual basis. Really? Mm-hmm. So you do the same kind of tests, similar kind of tests that are used for adults and used in high school and beyond? That battery of tests, it's a multimodal test, and it measures symptoms, it measures cognition, balance. And so we use that measure, and we also use a pediatric quality of life measure to try to understand how the kids are feeling about their physical, emotional, school, and social functioning when they're healthy so we can better understand the consequences of injury on their function should they unfortunately suffer an injury. And so we, as a part of our protocol, we use these baseline measures to compare back to in the event that a child suffers an injury to help us determine as objectively as we can how they are functioning and then to inform the care that is provided to them. What are the limitations of these assessment tools? Well, there's many. I think the limitations primarily of these assessment tools is that they're subjective. And Of course. Right, so symptoms are very subjective. In the middle school environment, we know it's sometimes difficult to reproduce the results. I mean, these are real-world stuff, and so there's a lot going on after school, and it's sometimes challenging for us to be able to have comparable results. There's very little data on these tools, and so some of the work that we've been doing has been to help to understand the reliability and psychometric properties of these tools and the test, retest reliability, developing normative values, et cetera, for the child SCAT-5 particularly Mm -hmm. uh, in this population. And that actually caught the attention of Harvard University, and they funded one of our students to work with that data and have a fellowship for them last year. And that PhD student is now a faculty member up at at University of New Hampshire. And so is continuing the work. Outstanding. So I know you're working to overcome the limitation issue with some interesting research into saliva biomarkers. You want to talk a little bit about that? That's just a really cool project. That work is with uh, Dr. Chip Petricoin mm-hmm. in the Center for Applied Proteomics and Molecular yep, Medicine yep, yep. here. Several years ago, we had an opportunity to have a conversation. It was one of those water cooler moments where Chip and I were talking, and I got to hear about the work that he was doing, and he heard about some of the work that I was doing, and we put our heads together and said, oh, gosh, we could 
maybe with the, their technology, we could develop a way to take some of the subjectivity out of the measures that are psychologically based and develop a biologically based marker that would be quantifiable, that would be non-invasive mm. and easily captured. And so saliva as a biofluid seemed to be ideal for that. And so we've been working, uh, Prince William County Public Schools partnered with us a number of years ago at their high school level to do a little bit of this work. So we've actually been working to create a biobank a number of years ago of saliva for healthy and traumatically brain injured individuals. We started this from 10-year-olds playing youth football mm-hmm. all the way up through collegiate athletes. And Wow. Yeah, so we recently published a paper on this where we had some very intriguing findings from that first paper. Well, let me ask the question that probably is on most of the individuals' mind who are listening to this podcast. Is there a saliva-based biomarker for concussions? Is that what the data says? Is that what your research is saying? So what our research would say is that there's proof positive that we can identify markers in saliva of autoantibodies that are present in 24 to 48 hours after concussion that are not present at baseline. And so we did this from a discovery perspective and then a validation perspective. And the other really interesting thing about this is we put sensors on a number of kids in the study and collegiate athletes who participated in entire teams, we gathered their saliva at baseline, and then we tracked them for the entire season. We looked at the number of impacts that they were receiving, and at the end of the season, for these football players, lacrosse players, etc., we put them into different categories. So people at the end of the season who had suffered a high volume of head impacts, but they showed no overt signs of concussion. Because mm-hmm. we had athletic trainers on the sidelines. So they, they didn't suffer a concussion. They never complained of any symptoms. And so we call those types of impacts sub-concussive blows that we hear about a lot in the news. And what we've noticed is that at the end of the season, when we looked in the saliva of these individuals, they had a high level of these impacts that their markers overlapped with the concussion group. And so it tells us that there might be reason to look more deeply into sub-concussive impacts. And is there some underlying physiological response between overt concussion and subconcussion that is similar? And we don't know yet. A lot more research needs to go into it, but it's a pretty exciting finding. Oh, without question. So where does the science stand on concussions in CTE? from your perspective and could there be a close tie or a relationship between people in youth sports you know and i'm not talking about folk who play in the nfl or even college but could there be a close tie or close connection between youth sports and, and cte so i would say that right now scientifically speaking there's no direct link between participation in youth sports and the development of any neurodegenerative condition like cte okay now, that does not mean it's not there, but people have been working to study this issue and... To see if it will be there. No, I get yep. it. What about in general, outside of youth sports? Concussions in general in CTE? So, sure. I think that over the years, right, there's been a lot of news media and concern about the development of CTE. It's a serious condition that should have concerns. The literature right now and the scientific debate is pretty heated on this issue. Right. So you have some that are looking post-mortem that are identifying changes in the histology of the brain tissue that they look at, that they can document on autopsy. 
in individuals that have died that they were concerned that they might have CTE, professional no, football right. players and so forth. And then you also have emerging evidence also from others that have identified that the types of symptoms that could be associated with CTE in the living, that those symptoms are highly prevalent throughout all of our population, that there's perhaps no reason to be concerned right now about a direct link between participation in contact sports and suicidality or development of depression Mm -hmm. and ultimately CTE. And so there's some really great work coming out of Harvard University on that. And interestingly, on the other side of the debate, there's really good work coming out of Boston University. They're doing really great work in this area. It'll be exciting to see how much we learn about this issue in the next 10 years. You got kids, Shane? I do. I have an eight-year-old. An eight-year-old boy or girl? A little girl. A little girl. Would you let her play girls' soccer? Yes, I would. Okay. She plays ice hockey and uh, okay. and, well, and lacrosse. Okay, well then, you'll let her play all of those sports. No problem. So, I will. You might be asking why, right? Uh, I can tell you my own personal story. I have two boys. Okay. One is, well, now one is 20 and one is 18. With both of them, we really debated this issue. The older one didn't want to play football, but the younger one did. And (laughs) my wife refused. (laughs) She just said, he's not playing football. And so if it were up to me, I would have let him play. But she was having no parts of it. And so given that it didn't happen, I guess you understand (laughs) how these relationships work. Yeah, from my perspective, there are so many benefits of participation in sport. Oh, yeah, without question. Particularly team sports. Yep. And so the research literature on the benefits is pretty extensive from a physical, social, emotional, psychological perspective, right, of participation in sport. The literature on risk of participation in sport and a concussion, so suffering a concussion, is pretty clear, but out of all the injuries that we're seeing in the middle school population, concussions are around 3% of the injuries. Not that they shouldn't be taken seriously, right? They should be. Severe injuries that result in greater than three weeks time loss are approximately like 2% of all injuries, right? So most of the injuries are pretty minor. Yes. And so when you take an issue like CTE, I certainly have a great concern about that. I don't think it's good to be hit in the head multiple times repetitively over the course of a career, but I think the benefits of the participation in youth sports and the known research that is out there that demonstrates that and the largely speculative research that has yet to be fully understood about a potential link between repetitive head injury and some long-term neurodegenerative condition. For me, as a parent, I want my daughter to be able to engage in those sports, but I do make sure that when she's doing so, that the emphasis is on health and safety and wellness, not performance, and that the coaches are educated and up to date and that we're doing things in practice to reduce the frequency of impacts that occur because practices are really where you can change things. Sometimes it's more difficult during competition. Understood. Understood. So what would be your baseline advice to coaches as ways to help mitigate injuries and concussions? So I I think my baseline advice would be stay current on education for coaches as Mm -hmm. a whole. 
but also for concussion to reduce the number of impacts that are happening in practice, to not engage in hitting, for instance, in football just for the sake of hitting, which I think we've seen lots of great progress on over the years. And I would say what I said before, which is cultivate a culture of wellness, cultivate a culture of physical health and well-being on the team so that we're taking care of each other. Uh, I think keeping that first and foremost in the coaches' minds rather than winning. What about parents? You know, so I, I think parents is, are interesting. Is there, is there a place where a parent can go where they're not going to be overwhelmed to get basic information on or assessment on what the latest research is telling us so that they know how to supervise and watch over their kid or things even to watch for at home so that they know what to be aware of? That's a really good question. And so in Virginia, another project I lead is called the Virginia Concussion Initiative. And it's uh, a multi-center project in partnership with the Virginia Department of Health and the CDC. And so we're creating online repository of information that's curated by professionals from throughout Virginia who are experts in concussion. And we have toolkits and resources for caregivers where they can go and they can get the facts on concussion and they can understand the types of tools that are being used to evaluate their kids and how to help to manage their child's recovery and to assess risk of participation in sport. And so that's an ongoing project and that website will be up and running by the end of July. And just found out we're gonna get some continued support to even advance that project moving forward. Outstanding, outstanding. This is all really, really cool stuff. And it's very interesting the kind of impact that we can have in our community when our faculty and our staff and our students really put their mind to it, but make a commitment to that community. And I want to thank you for the commitment that you've made to the community here in Northern Virginia. And this is one where there is a commitment of health that is made to the community and there's a benefit there, but it's also one where there's an educational benefit to our students and uh, it's the best of all worlds. So kudos to you. Great idea. Thank you. Thank you, President Washington. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. This is a passion project for me and I thank you for the opportunity. Those are the best ones to have. It makes you truly understand why you get up in the morning. Absolutely. All right. Well, look, I'd like to thank Shane Caswell, Professor of Athletic Training and Founding Executive Director of Mason's Sports Medicine Assessment, Research, and Testing Laboratory. I'm Mason President Gregory Washington, saying until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.